reading tonight is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and I'll be starting at verse 20, reading through to 28. You can follow along on the screen or in the Pew Bible I've got, it's page 1205. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Shalom, everyone. I'll I'll speak in English. I hope you keep the Bible text open, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I always look around the passage of Bible that we're reading. We've just pulled out nine verses. What happened just before it and what's happening right after it? I always like to see things in context. I imagine you do, too. Well, this is a, a passage like so many in 1 Corinthians as we are carrying on in this series about the Bible in 10 weeks. I love that idea. This is not Reader's Digest, but Speaker's Digest. It's pretty good, and I like that idea. So in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he is constantly barraging them with, what were you guys thinking? You thought, what? And you did what? You allowed what? And so it's a major, I don't like reading it because I feel so convicted throughout the letter because I do some things wrong. It might surprise you. I do some things wrong and he always seems to like nail me. And so here it is, though, towards the end of the letter, 1 Corinthians 15, when he wants to declare and make it clear as clear can be what is the gospel and then people are going to put up their hand. This is what happens throughout Paul's letter. And Peter Kraft, one of my favorite authors, uses this technique a lot where you answer back to the author. So he says, here's the gospel. Just want to make sure you get it. Verses three and four. I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. In other words, I didn't invent this. I heard it. I'm passing it on to you. And I already did this that Messiah had to die for our sins according to the scriptures. Now, many of you would know some Bible verses where that is. Where did the Bible say Messiah had to die? I think I spoke this to you some years ago that I was confused as a young Jewish lad 
that Messiah had to die. I thought Messiah would beat up the bad guys, which when I was a kid were the Russians. It's so simple when life is binary because they were the bad guys in the Cold War and they were the bad guys because three million Jewish people lived in the former Soviet Union and we were not allowed to practice our religion under the the the, the um, in the Cold War era. So when Messiah came, he'd beat up the bad guys, namely the Russians. In Bible days, they probably thought he'd beat up. The Romans, not that Jews wanted to run the whole Roman Empire or we wanted to run the whole Russian or Eastern Bloc Empire. No, we just wanted them off our back. That's what it was. So here he says, nope, I want to make sure you get this. Messiah died for our sins, and that was predicted biblically. And you could see that in Psalm 22. You could see that in Isaiah 53. You can see that in his woundedness in Genesis 3, etc. According to the scriptures, Messiah had to die. And that he was buried, because that's what you do with dead people. And that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection. Burial, because that had to conclude the death. Resurrection, but that's not really the end either, because sitting down is the conclusion of that one. So here he is making sure we all at St. Stephen's, right here in Surrey Hills, get it. What is the gospel? The death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah, according to the scriptures. So where in the scriptures does it say Messiah is going to rise from the dead? Where would that one verse be? That's a little tough. And so you remember that the Sadducees, this group of Biblicists who were part of the regime of Rome in the Holy Temple while the Jewish people were living there in first century. The Sadducees were Biblicists. In other words, they believed only what the Bible said and they couldn't find it that the resurrection was going to be there. The Pharisees added on all kinds of other things. And the Pharisees and Sadducees, among many other groups, fought with each other. This is not news. Two Jews, three opinions. This is one of those things by which we live. In fact, I have a controversy with myself about that. So this is fun. That is not a function of schizophrenia. Now, The resurrection of Jesus on the third day. Where might that be? Some will point to the story of Jonah. That's a nice allegory. But the best place is Hosea chapter 6. So if you want, you flip back there, would you? And you'll find with me Hosea chapter 6. I don't know what page it is on your Bible, but I'll just read you out of mine. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. That's the only place you're going to find a third day resurrection in the record of the Older Testament. Well, Hosea, that's not very important. Well, we're going to find that pretty significant. While we're here, let's just flip towards the end of Hosea. And it's chapter number 13. You might as well see it while we're here so you don't have to go back and forth.
In verse number 13, the sorrows of a woman in childbirth shall come upon him. He's an unwise son, for he shall not stay long where children are born. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. Pity is hidden from my eyes. Other versions talk about death. Where is your Sting. You'll recognize that from the passage subsequent to our read, um, the passage we read tonight. So back to 1 Corinthians 15. Now we know that Messiah had to die, be buried to prove he really was dead, and then be risen from the dead according to the scriptures. By the way, do you see that it, the pronoun was plural in Hosea? He will raise us up. Now, that's important to the apostle because it's not just Jesus doing his thing and being raised up. Now, we're somehow included. And the apostle wrote to the Colossians saying, if if he's risen, then we are risen with him. Didn't he say something like that? Since that has happened, then I'm sort of in the envelope inside. And if the envelope is lifted, then all the contents of the envelope are lifted. And that's me. Somehow. If he's risen, then so are we. So set your mind on things above. There's some kind of effect on the body of Messiah, that is, those who follow him, if he has been raised. So that makes sense. In fact, there were six witnesses or groups of witnesses, back to 1 Corinthians 15, of those who saw him. Verse 5, there's Cephas. Number two, the twelve. Number three, verse six, the five hundred brethren all at once, of whom the greater part remain, the present, but some have fallen asleep. That has nothing to do with sermons. Uh, Number four, verse seven, uh, then James, and then number five, the apostles, and then verse eight, finally number six, last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. Six testimonies assuring us that this whole story of the resurrection, it really happened. That'll be important. So then he's talking all about this resurrection. So, verse 12, now some will say, or wait a minute, if Christ is preached that he was raised from the dead, ah, come on, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Wait a minute. I don't see the resurrection of the dead. This is one of the major objections Jewish people, Orthodox Jews, have to your message. Because when Messiah comes, the resurrection of the dead ought to take place. Where is it? That means all Jews of all time being raised. That's what they mean by that. So where is that story? So Paul argues, and then I'll do some other things here, uh, in verse 13 and following, well, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Messiah is not risen. He's going to answer the charge that there's no resurrection. And he calls on six witnesses. If Christ is not risen, verse 14, then our preaching's empty. Uh, My preaching is useless. And your faith is also empty. And we're found to be false witnesses of God. So first, our preaching is useless. Second, we're liars to you, to God, and to the world. Third, your faith is useless. Fourth, we see that he says, 
If the dead did not rise, then Christ is not risen. Your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. So you are still in your sins. Good luck with that. Number five. He says in verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men most to be pitied. So number five, you're a miserable person. Not bad, but in misery. That's what that means. By the way, I was born in the state of Missouri, but that has no relation to it. And number six, he says, you are dead. You are still dead. You are low. You have no hope. Wow. So that's the kind of contest. Well, if the resurrection didn't take place, then Messiah's still dead. I'm dead. Boy, what a waste this is. And I'm miserable. I'm most to be pitied. I'm following a religion that doesn't work. So then, therefore, what? Messiah had to be raised. So, therefore, the resurrection had to take place. You remember in the Gospel of Matthew... He gets he's like an excited schoolboy writing a, an essay. I don't mean to demean the great apostle Matthew. I'm just saying that he writes that when the, maybe I'll read it. It's probably better. Matthew chapter 27. It's it's one of the most exciting writings in the scripture. It's the crucifixion moment says that uh, as Yeshua, verse number 50 of Matthew 27, Yeshua cried out again with a loud voice, yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth quaked and the rocks were split and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who'd fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city, appeared to many. So wait a minute, let me get back to the story. So when the centurion and those with him, do you, do you hear that he gets ahead of himself in his writing? Okay, and this happened and that happened. He's like a kid coming back and telling you what just happened um, in the footy or something. And it's the, and this happened and the quake happened and the rocks and the tearing of the veil and graves were open. And, and, and then let's get back to the centurion. So I see this resurrection as something that already happened, just not comprehensively. It was a raising. Look what it said. The graves, verse 52, many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves after his resurrection. These were Older Testament saints who came out of their graves. That would be so spooky. There's so much zombie stuff going on on television and in the movies. And that's weird. But this is okay. It's a little nervy, and I can't wait to see the DVD. I, I don't sell it over in the bookstall, but I, I can't wait to see the real DVD of what happened and how that happened. But these are clearly the beginnings of those who are like you and like me waiting for our death, burial, and then our resurrection. Does that make sense? So Matthew says that. Paul says this. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15. <clears throat> and he says, but now, verse 20, Messiah is risen from the dead. That's where our passage begins and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits might just sound like a nice 
agricultural term to you, but it's a huge word to Jewish people. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 23, you don't need to go there. There are in verse nine, the beginning of this third of seven holidays that Jewish people celebrate. And from what I understand, you're going to be learning about at camp. This is great. And no better than Martin. Martin Pakula is going to be a great teacher. You're going to love him. So sign up. Uh, And when he teaches you about first fruits, you can say, oh, we already learned all that. Don't do that. Uh, So there are three holidays today in March, April that are called one thing. In March, April, around what you call Easter is are three Jewish holidays. The Feast of the Lamb, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of First Fruits. The Feast of the Lamb or the Passover is a one day holiday in Bible terms. But in modern days, it's a seven or in a, outside of Israel, eight day holiday. It includes the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They just merge them. But I guess we do need to look at this one in Leviticus 23 and in verse number nine. I want you to see this. Because it's the only Bible holiday that's fixed to a single day of the week. It's weird. Most all holidays are fixed to a lunar calendar. And so full moon and some of you are crazed over blood moons. We'll talk later of full moons and the 22nd day of this month, etc. Here's what it says. Leviticus 23, verse nine. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land, which I give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. You shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf on the day after the Sabbath. The priest shall wave it. You shall offer on that day when you wave the sheaf a male lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two tenths of an ephah, a fine flour, etc., etc., etc. This is the not only the marking, but look at verse 15. You shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days or Pentecost. To the day after the seventh Sabbath, then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. So holidays, there are seven. The first, Passover. Second, Feast of Unleavened Bread. Third, First Fruits. Fourth, Pentecost. First Fruits is both a single day within that week of Passover, the Sunday, the day after the Sabbath. For those who missed it, that's not Monday. The Sabbath was and is Saturday, Uh, that's the way it is. And so that day, the Sunday during the week of Passover is first fruits. That's huge. You can't miss that. And it's also the beginning of a countdown, what we call the counting of the Omer, until you reach Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. Back to First Corinthians. When he chooses this word, Christ is risen from the dead, become the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. He's talking about this holiday of first fruits. By man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. I mean, if it's a man who mucks things up, some outsider can't fix it. It's got to be someone from the inside. So Yeshua, son of God, had to come as a human to fix it. 
As in Adam all die, so in Messiah all shall be made alive. All shall be. That's us. We're going to be made alive because he's risen. See how it works? He will raise us up on the third day. All right. But each in his own order. Verse 23. Christ, the firstfruits. No wonder he had to rise from the dead on Sunday. The day after the Sabbath. He couldn't rise from the dead on a Tuesday. That wouldn't fulfill the scripture. See how even the tiniest detail of Older Testament finds its fulfillment in Yeshua. I love that precision in God. Afterward, those who are Christ said is coming. So those like you and me, sorry, you and I, who are awaiting that imminent resurrection, will have our turn. So somehow Yeshua and those Older Testament saints came out of the tomb. And then those of us who are going to be waiting We're going to have our turn at the time. Then verse 24 comes the end when he, Messiah, delivers the kingdom to God, the father, when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power because he must reign till he's put all enemies under his feet. Again, a citation from the Older Testament. Again, an understanding that Daniel chapter seven is fulfilled in Messiah, who is the one approaching the ancient of days. You can read it later. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he's put all things under his feet. Psalm 8, Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. When he says all things, he doesn't mean himself because uh, he's accepted. Well, you get the idea. A little confusion. Somehow the resurrection of the dead matters. You say, well, you know, all right, so I believe it. I mean, I was raised. I've been catechized. I know I can memorize. I can cite. I can do it. Good. But it really matters because as we've been singing tonight and as we've been saying throughout our time in life, if you understand this, this is called hope. Not the kind of hope that a teenage girl has that she hopes she remembers her VCE studies or she hopes that Menachem, I'm sorry, Johnny is going to call her. Got to make it Presbyterian. Um, that Johnny is going to call me and ask me on a date, but he never does. That's a hope that does disappoint. But Romans chapter five says this hope does not disappoint. This is a hope That is, like Paul says, an anchor to our souls. In Thessalonians, he calls it the helmet of the hope of salvation. That's to guard your head. What does that mean? How many of you wear helmets? Bicycle people? That's it? Wow. We need a bike lane right here on Canterbury Road. That'd be good. You wear a helmet to protect your head. So when Paul says the helmet of the hope of salvation, he's saying your head needs protecting. And the hope of salvation is not wishful thinking. It's not, well, it'd be nice if, wouldn't I hope I win the lottery. Don't bother with that. I was at the crown last night. I saw so many hopeful people. Walking out disappointed. 
That wasn't biblical hope. That was wishful thinking. And no, I didn't go to gamble. The helmet of the hope of salvation says you want to know, you want to know, you want to have your head guarded. You want to make sure that you know, that you know, that you know, have this hope fixed on him. This hope that my life is not just these three score and ten or by reason of strength, 80. That when I die, that's not it. That there's something beyond the grave. And it's not wishful thinking. It is an anchor for your soul. What does an anchor do? It fixes you. It locks you in. It stabilizes you. It prevents you being tossed to and fro. No, the hope of the Jewish people, the resurrection of the dead, is embraced by you individually, one by one, as you join in with the community of faith. And we together anchor ourselves and our souls Because of the resurrection of Jesus. Man, I want to shout amen. I want you to shout amen. I calmly because you're Presbyterian, but I I want you to do that. Because if you get this, you get it all. If you know that this is not the end of it. You don't have any reason to fear what comes at the end of it. About a year ago, my brother... Six years, my senior was diagnosed with stage four liver cancer. And he had for approximately five decades lived, though, and occasioned uh, to be near our family at events. This was back in Kansas City. He was very distant from us. He'd go to an event and sit by himself a little smug, a little something. He was working on his own life. All right. But last year, about this time, when the diagnosis came, immediately he saw the end of days. And immediately he saw that he needed to repair things that had not been working right, namely family relationships. And I went back and saw him three times in the course of the next few months, November, January, and March, and was thrilled to be able to say that my brother and I got back in good relationship. My brother and my sister, my brother and cousins, that we got our brother back. That he saw the end of days and he repaired himself. He stopped drinking, which was the cause of the whole cancer and depletion of life. He, he just turned and became a real person again. If in a secular way a person can do that, Imagine in a theologically accurate way if you can see something beyond your terminus and say, that's not my end. I'm going on eternally with the living God, the God who's alive, the God who said to to Moses at the bush that was burning but never burned up, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Which means he's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were alive somehow when Moses encountered this living God. If you believe that there is a God, then he's not a God of wishful thinking. He's the God of all hope. And that's a hope that's a fix around my head that guards my head. So I don't know if I wonder if I'm really going to be saved. I 
I hope I'm going to be saved. You ask people, have you ever been born again? Are you born? Would you like to talk about Jesus? Oh, I'm pretty religious. I, I hope I go to heaven. You mean you're sure you're going to heaven? Well, no, I'm not sure because I, I do some sins that are, and I should do more things to help the poor. And yeah, I agree, you should do more things to help the poor, but that's not how you get to heaven. There's one way to get to heaven, and that's by believing in Jesus. End of story. That's, I don't know any other, is there any other story? That's it. So we read in Paul's letter to the Romans that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So somehow our mouth confesses and our heart believes. Hmm. And if that's your confession, you have a hope. And that hope isn't wishful. Don't you want to shout amen? That's just so good. This is no one. No wonder in the medieval period in, in Spain, la esperanza meant something so real. The hope. It wasn't the hope of getting a new house in Turak that somebody had paid for. It wasn't the hope of, uh, of, of winning the lottery. It was the hope of eternity with Yeshua. Faith without works is dead. I agree. That's all true, and I appreciate that, and you've got to live that way. However, that's not how you secure heaven. You secure heaven by faith, and that's it. And then that results in his coming and your being with him and with him forever. Then faith and hope are subjugated and love is the only thing that remains. As, as our brother said earlier. So this is it. This is how you guard your heart. This is how you guard your mind. Let me just say a couple words on this idea of confession. Anybody raised Roman Catholic? Okay. Just as many bicyclists. Okay. <laughs> now, let's merge these two sets. How many bicycling Catholics? Are? All right, anyway. All right, and we'll give you a chocolate. All right. Now, let me... Let me ask, when you think, and and Prezies, you can answer this too. When you think of the word confession, do you think of a man in a box and you go into the box and you say, I'm sorry, and here's my, you list a bunch of sins? Is that confession? Well, it can be, certainly can be. Think about it this way. When you confess your sins to God, it's not like God is up there and he, he was asleep and you say, Dear God, uh, yeah, um, yeah, I'd like to confess my sin. Oh, which ones? Oh, this sin and that sin. You did that? It's not like God didn't know what you did. Confession, by definition, means to agree together with. It's an agreement. So when I confess my sins, I'm saying to God, you know those things, <clears throat> oops, sorry, you, oh boy, am I embarrassed, that you said were sin, I agree together with you that those things are sin. And when I confess Jesus as Lord, I'm not making him Lord who wasn't Lord yesterday, but now he is. And I wake up God and say, excuse me, could you move Jesus into the Lord category? No, this is I'm agreeing together with God that what Jesus is, that God declared him to be Lord and he subjected all things to him, that what God said, I agree with. That's Jesus is Lord confessionally. Do you, does that make sense? So 
when I say, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. That's when you get your helmet. That's what's going to guard you down the road. When you slip up, when you don't do the good works, when you do good works and then you boast about it. Both are bad. The helmet of the hope of salvation preserves your mind. What a hope we have. And then that if at the end of it all, no matter what I've done or haven't done, no matter how many churches I've attended, how many speeches I've given, how many witnesses I've done to Jews and non-Jews, no matter what I've done, no matter how much I've given or not given, no matter what I've done, because of my faith and because of God's great mercy, he welcomes me. And he opens his arms. I remember my grandmother. She was 96 when I prayed with her to get saved. 96. She died at 101. I put her story at the back of my little testimony book called Whoever Heard of a Jewish Missionary. It's on the not-so-free side of the table in the other room. There's a free side also. But I remember Grandma Bessie. And I could just imagine it. When I prayed with her, she was a little lady. She was always shrinking. She was about five foot tall when she started. I don't know what she, she's shriveled. Uh, but she had her faculties to the end. So I prayed with her. She repented. She received Jesus as Messiah. I shout. I squeezed her. I probably hurt her badly. Uh, but I, I was so happy for her eternity because I knew that in just days or weeks, it turned out to be five years, she would be welcomed by heaven. And I imagined it when my mother called me to tell me that Bessie, my grandmother, had passed. I could just close my eyes and see somehow she st- that have that not Peter at a gate, but Yeshua stood there and arms out said, come into my presence. Not because she'd lived a holy life, not because she'd been charitable at church. She never once went into a church, but because Heaven reached her that day five years earlier, and it culminated when she passed. I could see it. Can you see it? That's what encourages them. That's why these Corinthians were needing this word. He is the deposit. He's the down payment. He is the first fruits. He's the beginning. And that means these guys at the, in the Gospel of Matthew got in on it. That means you can get in on it. That means the Corinthians can get in on it. Brothers and sisters on Canterbury Road, you can get in on it. We can have the assurance of heaven. That's hope. That's what we proclaim. That Yeshua is risen from the dead. And we're going to get in trouble for that. The apostles got in trouble for preaching the resurrection. Okay, I'll take that on board. I will be in trouble. You'll be in trouble. Let's do that for their sake, that they, like my grandmother, like my my dentist, like so many, one by one, find eternity. You have one of those white cards. I hope you'll turn that in to me after the service um, over in the hall or post it in or just email Jews for Jesus. Um, just bob at jewsforjesus.org.au. It'll get right to me. 
and we'll make sure we get you on the newsletter list. I want to tell you more and more, not tonight, I want to tell you more and more about God's love and about his story and what he's doing among Jewish people. It's worth hearing. Not because it's a story to tell that's kind of quaint or interesting, but because if you hear that God's doing that with Jewish people today, can you pass that on to people in St. Kilda and Caulfield today? Can you pass it on to Goldbergs and don't forget Gomez's and Andersons and Chen's and people who are deaf? Let's share this good news message. If it's good news for you, come on. It's got to be good for others. And if it's good for others, how dare you not pass it on? I don't want to indict you too much. I just want to make sure that we do it together. Amen. That's what the church is. We are witnesses. Two weeks ago, I was in a Presbyterian church in Houston, Texas. Last week, at a Pentecostal church in Brisbane. Next week, I don't know. I, I think I'm back in Sydney. But a fortnight ago, the pastor of the Prezi Church in Houston said, we had two witnesses to the resurrection this week. And I asked him later, I'm sorry, I, I, I never heard that term. I thought these were like Enoch and Elijah. I thought I didn't know what he was doing. But he said, no, we don't call them funerals anymore. We call them witnesses of the resurrection. I thought, what a great word to use. Feel free to borrow that from Pastor Kevin. Feel free to embrace that. If you're not yet a believer tonight, my oh my, he died according to the scriptures. He was buried. It proved that he died and then he rose from the dead. God has done that for you. All you have to do is confess him as Lord and believe in your heart. You will be saved. Man, oh man, I'm so glad to be here with you guys again. Thank you for letting me come. Brothers and sisters, let's go share this. Father, I pray that this church would continue to be a, a light on a hill, continue to be a great witness to you. Pray for Chris and all the staff. Pray for all the volunteers who make this such a good place. Pour out your grace on us that we might be proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, that all might be saved, one by one by one, not leaving anyone out. Help us, empower us, fill us with your spirit that we might go forth from here to do that in Yeshua's name. Amen.